Well, hello, friends. Welcome to the Capital City Christian Church Podcast. I'm Chris Taylor, and I'm going to be your host today. Let me tell you, we're so happy that you're listening in today. In fact, if this is your first time listening or you'd just like to reach out, feel free to shoot an email to hello at capitalcitychristian.org, and I'd be glad to talk with you. We're continuing on in this series, Making a Messiah Closing Arguments. We've been looking at the evidence for Jesus being the Son of God, and today we're looking at Jesus' own actions and words, suggesting that he is. Have you ever heard of the word theophany? Do you know what that means? It's when God opens up our world and shows us a tiny glimpse of his glorious presence. Let's take a look at one of these instances called the Transfiguration. Here's our senior minister, Dr. Stephen Doc Pattison. Let's pray together. Father, we're so grateful for your invitation to come into your presence. And I pray that you'll give us the wisdom to set aside the distractions and open ourselves to your presence here right now. And we pray that the words of our mouths and the thoughts of our hearts will please you. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Okay, guys, if you've got a Bible with you or a Bible app on your phone or your tablet, find Luke chapter 9. In a couple of minutes, we're going to jump in at verse 28, Luke 9, 28. I'm going to be reading it eventually from the New Living Translation, which I think is really a kind of a nice translation. Okay, how many guys love the movies? Any of you guys? See, we'd have gotten a whole lot more hands uh, quite a few years ago. Um, I think it's kind of diminishing, but I've always loved going to the movies. In fact, Friday night, Andy and Lathy and I went to watch Captain Marvel. It was okay. (laughs) And I'm not really that picky with flicks, to tell you the truth. I love a good Western sci-fi action, adventure, comedy, epics, even an occasional horror flick, which I find kind of amusing. Films like Braveheart, Schindler's List, anything Marvel, anything DC, Star Wars, Star Trek, Alien, Princess Bride, Monty Python. Pretty broad list. When I was a professor, Julie and I would have these movie nights at our house on Friday nights. We'd open up our home. We'd usually have about 20, 30 kids crowd into our living room for popcorn and a movie, provided a cheap place to take a date, and we would make sure you behaved. For years afterwards, Friday night was our family night. We kind of held it sacred, and most of the time our family got together for dinner and a movie. Two of the things I love about going to the movies are previews and special effects. In fact, my son Andy, whenever he sees a a trailer coming out for one of those things that we've seen in the previews that we think is really going to be cool, he sends me that on a text and we watch in advance. Have you guys seen the previews out right now for Avengers Endgame? It really looks good. And Dark Phoenix and the X-Men series, it's coming. Uh, You guys need to go to the movies, right? We're excited. And then there are the special effects, okay? So cool. And in my lifetime, they have gone from unbelievably cheesy to unbelievably good. I mean, I grew up a Star Trek fan. I'm not quite a Trekkie. I was almost a Trekkie. But when I go back and watch the oldest episodes of Star Trek, the special effects are bad by today's standards, right? It it almost makes you laugh. But a couple of weeks ago, my son Andy and I went and saw Alita, Battle Angel, the main character. In fact, most of the scenes in the movie were completely CGI. It was incredible how believable, how real it looked which has created a problem for us. Because guys, we live in a world in which there is so much make-believe and in which our make-believes look so real that we have become incredibly skeptical. 
hyper-skeptical was the Jesus stuff real? Did this stuff really happen the way that the eyewitnesses say that it did? I'm going to read you a story. Okay, Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 28. Here's what it says. About eight days after saying this, and we'll get back to what that was, Jesus climbed up the mountain to pray, taking along Peter, James, and John, his inner circle. And while he was in prayer, the appearance of his face changed, and his clothes became dazzlingly white. And at once two men were there talking with him. They turned out to be Moses and Elijah, and they made this amazing, glorious appearance. They talked about Jesus' exodus, the one he was about to complete in Jerusalem. Meanwhile, Peter, those with him, started out slumped in sleep, but when they came to, rubbed their eyes, holy cow. There's Jesus in his glory this time. Two men standing with him. Was it real? They thought it was. When Moses and Elijah had left, Peter said to Jesus, Master, this is an amazing moment. What if I build three memorials, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah? And he kind of blurted this out without thinking. No kidding. He would do that sometimes. And while he was babbling on like this, this light radiant cloud, a cloud that was just too bright, it enveloped them. And they found themselves buried in this cloud and they became deeply aware of the presence of God. And then they heard this voice out of the cloud. Where'd that come from? This is my son. This is the chosen one. Listen to him. Was it real? Was it really God? And when the sound of the voice died away, Jesus was standing there alone. And they're speechless. No kidding. They continued speechless. They didn't say anything during the days of what those they had seen. But later on, they're going to talk about it. Now, guys, we're in the middle of a series we're called Making a Messiah. Basically, is Jesus really the Messiah of God? What's the evidence? Are there solid reasons why you and I should take Jesus seriously? In January, we dug into the Gospel of Mark. We looked at the unbelievable godlike power of Jesus. If, God really, if Jesus really did the things that the eyewitnesses say that he did, then he's way more than a man. February, we dug into the Gospel of Matthew. We focused on his godlike authority, the words that he spoke. If Jesus really said the things that the eyewitnesses say that he did, he was either an incredibly dangerous liar or he was a twisted lunatic or he was God. And now in March, we're going to look at what we call the closing arguments. Jesus just flat out and says it I'm the Messiah. I'm the one that you guys have been coming for. I'm the son of God. Are you going to follow me or not? And today we're going to unpack one of the scenes where Jesus just morphs. He just transfigures literally in front of them. He pulls down kind of like a veil and lets his God side pour out. And according to the eyewitnesses, God the Father himself shows up in this cloud and he puts his stamp of approval on Jesus, his son. Amazing scene. We call this scene the transfiguration. Matthew and Mark, when they tell of the scene, actually use the term in Greek, metamorpho, where we get the term metamorphosis, something morphs. And the timing of the scene is critical. 
This happens right after Jesus asks his disciples two questions. First of all, who do people around you say that I am? Your friends, your neighbors, the people you work with, the people you listen to. What do they say about me? We talked about that last week. And then the second question, even bigger, is who do you think I am? Who do you think I am? And when Peter says, I think you're the Christ, the Son of God, sent from God, Peter says, you got it. Or Jesus says, you got it. You're right. And now it's time for me, your Messiah, your Savior, to die. Which confused them because no one had expected their Messiah to die except Jesus. And Jesus says, I'm not the kind of Messiah you were expecting. I've come to do work way grander than what you were thinking the Messiah was going to do. I've come not to save your nation. I've come to save your souls. I've come to reconnect you with God. And that's going to take my dying for you. So are you with me? Are you still willing to follow? And then about eight days later, Luke, the gospel writer, rarely drops in these timestamps. And usually when he drops in a timestamp, he expects you to lean in because he's connecting two things, whatever happened before with what happens next. About eight days later, Jesus proves to them physically that even though though he is not the kind of Messiah they were expecting, he is the Messiah. He kind of like pulls his face down. So the God part of him shines out. And the Father shows up and says, this is my son. He really is your Christ. You listen to him. You follow him, even though it's scary. Now, Guys, I take this story seriously. I really do. And I think you should too. Now, if you're willing to admit that there just might really be a God, right? This story has all kinds of marks of historical authenticity. Now, if you don't admit at the outset that there might be a God, then you have to come to the conclusion that these guys just simply made this stuff up whole scale, right? But I think it takes way more faith to be an atheist than it does to be a theist. And I think this story has all kinds of marks of historical authenticity. I'll show you. There are three accounts of the transfiguration, not just one. Three of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all tell the story. Now, historians call that multiple attestation, multiple sources, and it's a big deal. And all of the sources tell the story a little differently, which is another mark of an eyewitness. If they all told exactly the same story in exactly the same words, you're assuming that they're colluding together and just telling one story. It's not what it is. And the account is given to them by three eyewitnesses, not just one. If this account was given to them by one eyewitness, you might figure they went up on the mountain with Jesus, ate a few mushrooms, and he saw something, right? Or maybe some first century chemist actually came up with the formula for LSD and he tried it, right? And Jesus morphs in front of him. But there are three eyewitnesses. And all three of these eyewitnesses went to their deaths swearing that what they had seen was true. In fact, two of them were killed for preaching this stuff. One of the eyewitnesses, a guy named James, was the very first Christian martyr. Acts chapter 12 talks about Herod Agrippa, who was a grandson of Herod the Great. Herod the Great's the guy who tried to kill Jesus when he was a baby. Herod Agrippa launched an attack on the early church, hated the early church. His first casualty was James. Had him killed with a sword. 
because he was one of the leaders of the early church. Peter, <laughs> interesting story. According to tradition, Peter, one of the eyewitnesses, was crucified by Nero. Ever heard of that name, Emperor Nero? Crucified by Nero upside down. And that was at Peter's request because he didn't feel worthy to die in exactly the same way as Jesus, his Lord. So he requested to be killed upside down, and they called this St. Peter's Cross. Peter wrote two of the books in our New Testament. And in one of them, the second one, this is what he says about this event, the transfiguration. He says, we saw Jesus' majestic splendor with our own eyes. When he received honor and glory from God the Father, he says, I saw it. The voice from the majestic glory of God said to him, this is my dearly loved son who brings me great joy. We heard the voice from heaven when we were with him on that mountain. It happened, Peter says. I was there. And he was willing to die upside down because he believed this so firmly. Third witness, John. John lived to be an old man. He died in exile, never backing down, whatever the cost. Now, my daughter, Alethea, is kind of twisted. Okay, she is. She feels bad for John. That's what she told me. I mean, Peter and James got to die these great martyr deaths. And Peter had to die as an old man in exile, right? She's a twisted young lady. She really is. But what's even more remarkable is that these three guys, Peter, James, and John, when they passed on the story, they didn't make themselves look too good. Now understand, in ancient stories, just like in modern stories, most of the time witnesses try to make themselves look pretty good in the story. These guys didn't. They just tell it like it was. A mark of historical authenticity. So let's look at what happened. Every once in a while, God gives somebody a physical experience of his presence. Now we believe as Jesus followers that God is omnipresent. That means he's everywhere. No matter where you are, no matter who you are, God is around you, right? It's one of the things we believe as Jesus followers. And every once in a while, we feel his nudges. You felt them. In fact, I felt one of his nudges early this morning. I'm not going to tell you what it was. It's none of your business. It's between me and him. Sometimes his nudges are more than a whisper. Sometimes he pulls down the veil just far enough that it'll bring you to tears. It'll rattle your bones. I hope you felt that too. See, our God is quite capable of blowing your socks off with just the gentlest of touches anytime he wants to. For me, that doesn't happen very often. For some of you guys, more frequently. It's okay. He's God. Gives me enough. But every once in a while, and these are rare, and these are rare for a reason, God pulls the veil way down. Sometimes these encounters with God are more than life-changing. They're history-changing. We call them theophanies. It's built off two Greek words, theos, God, phanos, or phanero, the appearance of an appearance of God. God shows himself. God makes himself physically visible in some way for just a moment. Now, it's not that you're actually seeing the physical body of God. God doesn't have a body. He's a spirit. But he gives us some kind of a physical experience of his presence, a peek at something that tells us he's here. Now, there are people who study these things, these theophanies. And they study the theophanies in the Bible. There are several. They study some of the theophanies of church history, and there are a few. And people who experience these theophanies have some things in common. 
And this is what these guys who study this stuff tell us that they experience. First of all, they describe their experience of God as ineffable. I love that word. You know what it means? It means there are no words. You can't describe it with words. Words are not adequate. The experience is too powerful, too awesome, too terrifying, too beautiful. They also describe it as awful. Not in the modern sense of the term, but in the old sense of the term. It fills you with awe. It blows your socks off. Stunned amazement. God is overwhelmingly awesome, almost terrifyingly so, they say. In fact, they describe how unworthy they feel in his presence. And they say they sense that God is so alive. He's the source of life. He's so alive that you barely feel like a wisp in his presence. And they say that you sense the holiness of God. Have you ever been in the presence of something so holy that you feel completely unworthy? That's what they experience. And it says they sense a power that is absolutely irresistible compared to whom all of us together are completely defenseless. Guys, you would have a better chance of containing the oceans with a tinker toy set than containing God. And yet these guys experience something that they consider intoxicating. As overwhelming as he is, as overpowering as it is, as terrifying as it is, experiencing God is what we were made for. That's what we were made for. Now, how's all that stuff apply to Peter and James and John, Jesus up on a mountain? Not yet. One more couple little pieces, okay? One more couple little pieces. That's bad English. There's two other guys that show up on the scene for the transfiguration of Jesus, a guy named Moses, a guy named Elijah. And they had experiences of God on their own back in the Old Testament days. First, Moses. Remember Moses? Exodus, Passover, right? We've got Pharaoh, the plagues, the Red Sea. After that, the Israelites are wandering around in the desert. Moses goes up onto a mountain, Mount Sinai. He gets the Ten Commandments of God. And while he's up there, he says something to God that really is kind of stupid. Here's what he says to God. He says, God, show me your glory. God, show me what you've got. You might as well have said, God, strike me dead. <laughs> Pull down the veil, he says. Let me take a peek at you, God. Really? And God says to Moses, how about this? What if instead I hide you deep into a crevice of a rock? And what if I cover your face with my hand? And what if I pass by and just give you an inkling of my presence? And what if after I pass by, I remove my hand so you can just get a bare glimpse of me as I'm about gone? You know why? Because Moses, if I show you any more than that, you're going to die. No one can see my face, he says, and live. None of us can handle any more than the presence of the presence of God than a guarded glimpse, God says. Guys, it would be safer to fly into the sun on a kite than it would be to enter into the presence of God unguarded. See, there's an infinite gap between man and God, and God tells Moses, you can't take my reality. You can't take my holiness. It would destroy you. Now, guys, is your God that big? 
Because if he's not, he's not the real God. So God covers his face with his hand till he's nearly gone. And the experience is still so overwhelming that it's kind of like Moses' face glowed like on steroids. The dazzling brightness of God's presence stuck to his face so that he shone like a light. Moses actually had to put a veil over his face because it was scaring his people. His face just kept on glowing. Now, you think it happened that way? Do you believe that? Second theophany was experienced by Elijah. Elijah was one of the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. And Elijah's up on a mountain. He's in a cave. He's spent. He's broken. He's scared. Because the enemies wanted his, his death and they were after him. And somehow, I don't know how, he heard God say, go out and stand before me on the mountain. And as Elijah stood there, says the Lord passed by. Huge windstorm. So mighty that rocks were torn loose. It says God wasn't in the wind. After the wind was this amazing earthquake. You ever been in an earthquake? A big one will blow your socks off. We had a few of them when I was out on the West Coast. God wasn't in the earthquake. After that, there was this fire. God wasn't in the fire. After the fire, there was a sound, it says, of a gentle whisper, which I think is so cool. And when Elijah heard the gentle whisper that he believed was from God, he wrapped his face, covered his face with his cloak, covers his eyes. (laughs) Smart guy. Because no one can see the face of God and live. No one can endure more more than a guarded glimpse. And he goes out and stands at the entrance of the clay, uh, cave with his face wrapped with his cloak and he hears the voice of God and that voice changed him. No kidding. Now, those are the characters. Let's go back to the scene. Transfiguration of Jesus. Jesus takes Peter and James and John up onto a mountain to pray. Why these three disciples, not the rest of them? I don't know. I mean, sometimes it happens in the gospel story like that. He just takes his inner circle with him. While he's praying, Luke says, his face morphed, was transfigured. Even his clothes became this intense, dazzling white. And when the disciples see him, they freak out. No kidding, you would too. Now, I know that we're more skeptical today, right? Some of you guys would be like a hologram, maybe? LEDs? If you ever look straight into a high-powered flashlight, maybe they turned on that strobe, right, and it just kind of blinds you, something like that perhaps, you'd be looking for the wires, wouldn't you? <laughs> they didn't have CGI. They didn't have holograms, LEDs, and all that stuff back then, right? Couldn't have been. Steve Smith is our worship guru. He's pretty slick. He could make my face look like it was glowing. You know how he'd do it? He'd say, lower your head and we'll turn up the lights, Right? Maybe wax it a little first. Jesus wasn't using any media tricks. He just starts glowing. Dazzlingly white. If you were there, you think you'd wet your pants? Jesus is giving him a peek. This is Jesus unveiled. This is Jesus with his skin peeled back. 
the glory of God shining through. This is Jesus unadulterated, uncut, unfiltered, cognito. And then it says these two dead guys, Moses and Elijah, they just show up on the scene. They've been dead for centuries. These two guys who had had their own encounters with God, the presence of God. And they start talking with Jesus. Now, why these two? I don't know. Abraham, David, they could have shown up. Maybe because Moses represented the law to them. And Elijah represented the prophets. Together they represented the whole Bible, their whole system of religion, the way that they did life with God. Or maybe because God had used Moses to deliver his people once, and now he was using Jesus. And Elijah was the forerunner of the Messiah preparing his way. I don't know. These two guys who've been dead for centuries are just standing there. They're right in front of Jesus. Two of the greatest old dead guys ever. And they're standing there chatting with Jesus and Jesus is not the least bit dazzled. Huh. Or maybe it's something to do with the fact that they had their own theophanies. But there was something they didn't get in their experience of God. Neither of them had been permitted to look into the face of God, right? And now they can they're standing right in front of God. They're looking into his eyes face to face. They're looking into the face of Jesus. What a gift. And I have no idea how Peter and James and John recognized Moses and Elijah. I mean, they couldn't have gone to their photo book and found pictures there. They didn't have Wikipedia yet. Their Facebook was a couple of years off. Maybe Moses and Elijah had these name badges. Hello, my name is Moses. Hello, my name is Elijah, right? Maybe Jesus was just talking to us and says, Hey, Moses, hey, Elijah, how are you guys doing? I don't know. Peter. This is the Peter who was there. This is the Peter who had this scene just seared into his brain and he talked about it in his own letter. Peter says, Jesus, this is amazing. This is great. I can't believe we're here. What if I set up three tents somehow? I don't know who's going to do it. You know, I don't know where the materials would have been. I think he's just babbling. He says, what if I set up one tent for you, one tent for Elijah, one tent for Moses? Sometimes Peter blurted things out when it would have been better for him just to shut up and watch, right? Or maybe Peter was just trying to put Jesus and these two guys into a box that he could understand. The word for tent that he uses is the word that is also used for tabernacle, where they used to go worship God. And maybe Peter's thinking, if God is showing up, maybe we need some religion. Maybe we need a little bit of church, a little box to put him in. Verse 34, as he's babbling on, this cloud overshadowed them. And it's a weird, weird cloud. And in their minds, that's ominous because sometimes God would show up in a weird, weird cloud in the Bible. And it says terror gripped them as this cloud actually just kind of settles over them. No kidding. I'm telling you guys, if it happened that way, you'd be terrified too. And they heard a voice from the cloud. No speakers, no electronics. They heard a voice from the cloud. Now, if you were God and you wanted to speak to these guys out of a cloud, what would you say? I can tell you what I would say, okay? But it's because I'm twisted too. I'd say, boo. I'd want to watch them jump. It'd be cool. If I was nicer, maybe I'd say, don't be afraid, guys. It's God, but I'm not going to hurt you. Boys from the cloud says to Peter and James and John, this Jesus is my son. 
He's your Messiah. He's your Savior. He's your Lord. He's your God. Listen to him. Now, Jesus had just blown their minds by talking about having to suffer and die, about what it's going to cost for us to follow him. And God says, this is my son. You listen to him. You follow him, whatever it costs. To which the only sane answer is what? Yes, sir. But it goes deeper than that. Here's what happens next. When the voice was finished... Jesus was still standing there and the other guys are gone. You know what God is telling them? He's saying, Moses and Elijah, that's the old way. It's the old way of coming to God. This is Jesus. This is my son. This is your Messiah. You listen to him now. Now God says, you come to me through Jesus. And I'm telling you guys, if God the Father calls Jesus my son, my Messiah, my Savior, I'll go with him. So, what if it really happened, guys? What if it really, really happened that way? No CGI, no LEDs, no wires, no fog machines, no hidden speakers, no special effects. Any of which would be a pretty big miracle in itself 2,000 years ago, right? What if it really happened that way? Just the way Matthew, Mark, and Luke, just the way Peter, James, and John tell us Every one of them willing to die for Jesus, most of them who did, pretty strong evidence, isn't it, that Jesus really is who he claimed to be? That he really is who we Jesus followers think he is? A couple of takeaways before I wrap this up, almost done. Four takeaways, very quickly. Takeaway number one. Guys, in some ways, this is kind of like the preview that you see in a movie theater. A teaser. Coming attractions, a glimpse of what's coming. For a while, Jesus looked like this. No, not quite this way, but he took on one of these bodies. Stepped into our world. Someday, you're going to see Jesus unveiled with his mask pulled down. Here's what's cool. 1,200 years before Jesus was transfigured, Moses was up on a mountain. He was given a glimpse of the glory of God. The glory of God was so dazzling that Moses' face shined afterwards like the moon reflects the sun and the shine just stuck to his face. Guys, Jesus didn't glow because he was in the presence of God. He glowed from the inside. It's because he is the glory of God. He pulls down the veil and he lets his God side peek out for just a moment and it blew their socks off. God. Takeaway number two. When Peter and James and John and Moses and Elijah see the face of God, this time they don't die. God didn't have to hide them in the crevice of a rock. They didn't have to have them wrap their heads with their cloaks. They probably could have died. They were so scared. But here's the deal. Through Jesus, we can come into the very presence of God and not die. Through Jesus, we have access to God when he touches us. As powerful as he is, as perfect as he is, we come into his presence. And instead of getting what we deserve, we get grace. <laughs> can you imagine what it's going to feel like to come into God's awesome presence? And instead of being crushed by our unworthiness... You feel his love and his grace.
can't tell you what that's going to feel like. That's what we can experience through Jesus. Takeaway number three. When Jesus pulled down the veil and gave us a peek, he was showing us that he could have gone back and forth between heaven and earth at will. He didn't have to die to get back to heaven. Jesus could have stepped back into the glory of God at any moment that he chose. You know what that means? It means that no one could have forced him to the cross. Jesus could have stepped back into the glory of God anytime he wanted. Do you actually think the Jewish leaders and the Roman leaders and the Roman soldiers and all of the rest of them could have forced Jesus to a cross? Jesus unveiled. He chose the cross for you. And if that doesn't blow your mind, you don't get it yet. Last one. You know what else the disciples experienced in this scene? They experienced the heart of worship. The heart of worship. Guys, we come here to worship on Sunday mornings. It's more than talking about God. It's putting ourselves in a place where we can be receptive to the presence of God. He's here. Do you believe that? He's here. That's his promise. Worship takes you way past just believing in God. These disciples believed in God. Here they experienced his presence. They got a glimpse of his glory. And that's what worship is about. We don't come here to sing about God. We don't come here just to learn about God. To work for God. To get points from God. We come here by his invitation to get a glimpse of his glory. And to get quiet and try to be receptive to his presence. It's not enough to do life for God. He wants us to do life with him. We're not here to go through the rituals of religion, to do enough religion that maybe someday we get to see God. We're here to put ourselves in a place where we can experience his presence, where we are open to his touch. He's here. Will you let him nudge you? Will you go where he leads you? Why don't you pray with me, please? Father, we're so grateful for your presence. We believe that you're here and we want to be receptive. We live our lives so busily, so noisily, that most of the time we miss you. So here we want to just get quiet and remember who we are. And remember that you're here. Father, we love you dearly. We want to honor you now. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen.